Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last week, after we finished up, Micah, the real live member of our congregation, came up and spoke to me about what I had said about the book of Micah. And he said, you did not point out that the name Micah, a shortened version of Micaiah, actually means who is like God. And actually, Micah, who wrote this book, is going to do a little wordplay later in this book where he's going to ask that question. He's going to say, who is like God? He's going to kind of play with his own name. So now you know what the word Micah means. We are going to start in chapter 2 of Micah. We're going to wrap up chapter 2 and get into chapter 3 tonight. The end of chapter 2 is the end of the first big section of the book of Micah. There are actually three sections to the book, and they all follow a similar pattern. They all start with God making his case. They all start with God saying that Israel and Jerusalem are in error against him. And then he states what he's going to do about it. But then every one of these sections ends with a promise of the restoration of Israel. And so again, this phrase that I have used so many times that you're tired of hearing me say, I know I'm tired of hearing me say it, but the prophets speak with one voice. They all say the same thing. They say it different ways. They say it in different contexts, but they say the same thing, which is that God is going to restore Israel. And the more that you see it, as I'm piling up the evidence here, that this is what all the prophets say, the more you realize that it just cannot be satisfactorily fulfilled in the church. There is a theology out there that says that the promises that God made to Israel are being satisfied in the church. Once God got to the church, he said, there it is, the crown of my creation. I've done everything I'm going to do. And all those promises that I made to that people group and that land and that city and that temple and all those promises are being satisfied in some spiritualized way within the church. And as you see the promises, as you see the specificity, the locality, the geography of these promises, there's just no way to say it's satisfied in the church. On top of that, as we saw on Sunday, the promises that have to uh, flow to the Gentile nations have to flow through the Jewish nations, through the Gentile nations. If there were not an Israelite nation, if there weren't a Jewish nation, then there wouldn't be the Jewish Messiah, nor would there be the promises of blessing to all the nations through Israel. And so I know I become accused every so often of being too Israel-centered or putting too much emphasis on Israel, but you just can't escape the importance of Israel all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. And when you have the number of prophets all saying that there's going to be a future restoration of Israel, a future ingathering, a future kingdom, that there's going to be David's greater son sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem, and you hear that over and over and over again, it becomes very difficult for anyone to say to you, uh, that doesn't mean that. It means the church. So you're going to see that tonight, too. We're going to start in Micah chapter 2. The reason we're going to be able to bite off chapter 2 and chapter 3 tonight is that really, these are very, very straightforward passages. Other than a couple of interesting turns of a phrase or some geography, like in chapter 1 that we saw, other than that, it's kind of self-explanatory. The words kind of preach themselves, and so I don't have to do a great deal of hammering away at these passages in order for you to understand the intent of the passages. I mean, I will anyway, but you don't need me to. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When the morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them. They covet houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. You have to understand why the word inheritance is so important here. So here's my first comment. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, where they were actually slaves, when he brought them into the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, one thing that God did was apportion the land to the different tribes and to the various families, and that became an inheritance that was continual. That was your land. That's your inheritance. In fact, he even went so far as to talk about a year of jubilee. So if you had to use your land as any kind of surety against a loan or anything, it was going to come back to you. In the year of jubilee, everything that God said was going to be restored again. And so when they say that they rob a man of his house and take a man's inheritance... That's really an indictment against these people because God gave those people that land and now they've literally taken it. And so people are losing their inheritance within Israel, an inheritance that was given to them by God himself. And so this is really a a crime against God himself. Verse 3, therefore thus says the Lord. Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. And on that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. And to the apostate, to the unbeliever, to the foreign nations, he has apportioned our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You'll have nobody to plead your case in the court of heaven because it will be God himself who's pouring out this punishment. And so it will do no good to send in a lawyer or somebody to plead your case. There will be nobody to stretch the measuring line anymore. You're going to lose your inheritance. And I think that's as far as we got last week. Verse 6 is Micah initially speaking for himself and then speaking about the false prophets. Because in Israel, there were a great many false prophets who were were going to talk about in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And what identified them as false prophets is that they were saying the very opposite thing of what the reality was. The thing they were saying was, don't worry, we're the children of God. This is the land that he gave us. You don't have to worry. It's going to be peace and prosperity. And we're going to see in chapter 3 that they're going to be interested in things like wine and liquor. Don't worry, just have a drink, relax, everything's fine, it's good. And so Mike is going to say, unless they agree with me, unless they're saying the same thing I'm saying, then they're false. Because I know for a fact that I'm speaking for God. And of course, history has uh, proven that Michael was right. And so Micah knows for a fact that he's telling the people exactly, warning them exactly against the things that are coming their way. And yet the false prophets are saying, why don't you shut up? And they're going to keep talking and they're going to say all the wrong things. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's still going on today. There are a great many people on the Internet You know, we're on the Internet. I like the Internet okay as a tool for what it is. But there's an awful lot of uh, terrible evil going on on the Internet. But I like it as a communication vehicle, and it works well for the kind of teaching that we do. But, man, sometimes I think I will make another teaching video, and I'll put it up on the Internet. Let me go see if anyone else has really taught this, talked about it. Is it out there already? Should I do it? And, uh, oh my goodness, there are so many people speaking for God now. 
I mean, they don't even have to have any kind of qualification. They don't have any congregation. They don't have any kind of body of elders over them. They have no ordination. They, they have no affiliation with a church that would give them credibility. There's nothing said about their background or their learning or anything, but they're talking for God. And all they've got is a webcam and the boldness to do it. And there's no filter. There's nothing to stop people from just wildly making up anything about God. And so many of them these days are taking the completely wrong view. The Bible tells us what the right view is. This is what God's like. And yet they'll say, God's not like that. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that judgment thing. You don't have to worry about a God who is one day going to make everybody stand in front of him and everyone's works are going to be tried. They're saying wild things about uh, there just is no punishment. Oh, there is no hell. Everybody's saved. Universalism. This is just rampant all over the Internet. But then I'm reassured by the fact that Micah had to deal with it too. Micah had to deal with the fact that there were false prophets saying wrong things, provably wrong things. Verse 6, they're saying to Micah, do not speak out. So they do speak out. The false prophets are telling Micah, be quiet. We don't want to hear that doom and gloom stuff. We don't want to hear judgment from God's stuff. We don't want to hear that we're going to be taken in captivity, that we're going to go into the Assyrian captivity. We don't want to hear that. We want to tell people that it's fine, it's peaceful, it's good. Have a drink. Everything's fine. Do not speak out. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things the very things that Micah's talking about, if they don't speak concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. In other words, God will judge them. God is going to hold them accountable. You know, the Bible says that we're going to be accountable for every idle word. And that should be frightening to the people who are out there speaking according to their own opinions instead of, what God says. So verse 7, is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? What's the answer to that question? Is the spirit of the Lord impatient? No, he describes himself over and over again as long-suffering. He's put up with these people for a long time. Remember when we were in the book of Judges, how a generation or two after God had delivered the Israelites, the people would forget. The people would rebel and they'd chase their foreign gods and then they'd go into some kind of captivity or trouble or problem or attacks and then God would send them a judge and that judge would lead them again into victory. And then they would all say, thanks to God, oh, we are God's people. He has delivered us from this. And then they'd wait a generation or two. I kept saying as we were looking in the book of Judges that they would get fat and happy. And they wouldn't have to fight anymore for their very existence. And so they would start thinking, well, we're fine. And it's all fine. We're good. We're well fed. We've drunk a lot. We don't need God. We don't, eh. Tip our hat to God. And uh, just carry on, which, by the way, is very much how so much of the American church and American society is right now. Because we haven't had to fight for our existence, why do we call the World War II generation the greatest generation? Because they actually had to fight for the very existence of the freedoms that we have here in the United States. But we have an entire generation that has grown up not knowing anything about that. And because they don't know anything about it, they've gotten fat and happy and sloppy. And, and now they're arguing about free college and which bathroom to use, which people weren't fighting about in World War II because they were too busy fighting to be alive. They didn't have time to worry about which bathroom. So again, very much like what was happening in Micah's day. The false prophets are assuring Israel that everything is fine. And Micah, against all of them, is saying, it's not. It's not. Sure, you have plenty. 
You have that plenty on the backs of the poor. You've been robbing people, taking from people. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer and more, more fodder, more grist for the mill. And you won't listen that God has already told you not to be like this. And by the way, which we will see in just a moment, in Joshua's day, they have all agreed. They've made a vow. They have said, we're going to follow the law. We're going to follow God. We're going to do things God's way. We're going to be his nation. And here they are turning their backs entirely on God. So is the spirit of the Lord impatient? No, he's long-suffering And yet this is happening now. You're going into the Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity after that in the late 500s. Why are these things happening? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? If you were walking uprightly before God, you wouldn't fear his words. So you wouldn't have to change his words. You wouldn't have to explain away his words and you wouldn't be prophesying in a false way. You'd be able to say what God says because you were upright. But in their rebellion, they're denying what God has said. So recently my people have arisen as an enemy. And then he lists some of the things they do. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passerbys who are returning from war. So here are the very people who have fought for you. And because they're soldiers, which would make them lesser than the high and mighty in Jerusalem, you catch them in the way on their way back home and you rob them. You take their cloaks in the way. The women of my people, you evict each one from her pleasant house. So she's got a house, she's got a household, and if she has some debt against you, rather than work out the debt and have empathy for her, you're throwing women out of their houses. All of which, of course, God had said don't do. So each one is being thrown out of her pleasant house from her children. You take my splendor forever. Arise and go For this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction. Now we have to talk about that language for a minute. This idea of Jerusalem, especially Jerusalem, being a place of rest is fundamental, instrumental to the Jewish religion. They know that God is going to deliver them into a place where they have rest from all their enemies, they have rest from all the wild animals, it's a place flowing with milk and honey, and and so this idea of rest was just so very vital and important to them. Let's look at a couple of other verses for just a moment. Um, You, Tom, go to Deuteronomy 12.9, and the rest of us are going to go to Joshua, Joshua 23. Since Deuteronomy comes before Joshua, Actually, back up one verse and actually read one more verse than I gave you. Read that whole section. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone is doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Hold it. What's happening here in Deuteronomy, they're being told they're about to go into the land of milk and honey. They're about to go into the land that God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying... You've been slaves in Egypt, but when you go into that land, you're not going to do what you're doing now. You're not going to, every man, do what is right in his own eyes. You're going to follow the law of God. Look at the next verse. For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. So the reason that everybody was doing whatever was right in his own eyes is because they had not yet entered into the rest that God was going to give them. They hadn't entered the promised land. They hadn't been delivered from all of their enemies quite yet. But notice the language of rest. Because throughout their 40 years of wandering and such, they were constantly at the mercy of enemies. They were constantly battling. And even when they took their land, they had to fight to take their land. And the promise loomed over them, you're going to have some rest. So this is very big in the Jewish mindset and theology. What does the next verse say? 
But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that your Lord God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, and burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present. Okay, so you're not going to do every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. You're going to follow the uh, rules and the regulations that God has already laid out for you. You're going to bring your gifts and your tithes and your worship, and you're going to bring them to the place where God set his name. God set his name in Jerusalem. So this is a promise of Jerusalem, and it's a promise, very importantly, a promise of rest. Okay? Uh, everybody in Joshua 23? This is kind of the end of Joshua's career. As you may recall, Moses was not allowed to bring the children of Israel into the land of promise. Instead, that was done by Joshua. I think it's typological that it worked out that way. God is always teaching something. And the law, Moses, couldn't take the children of Israel into the promises of God. It had to be done through Joshua, which is why the angel said to Mary, you're going to be pregnant and you're going to name the child Joshua. The Greek cognate, Aesus, is Jesus. That's why we call him that. But the Hebrew name is Yahashua. And so it's important to recognize that Joshua was able to lead the children of Israel into their promised land. And when he led them in, they conquered, they took all the land, there were already cities there, it was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey, and now Joshua, at the end of his life, at the end of his career, this is kind of his farewell address to everybody. Starting in chapter 23 of the book of Joshua, verse 1. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for the elders and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and said, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations, which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out before you and drive them from before you, and you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. So that idea of a land promise, possessing the land, taking Jerusalem and God giving you rest is a very important part of the promises to Israel. You'll be at rest. Now, of course, we know that there is a theology out there among the amillennials, among the preterists, among the postmillenarians, among these different groups. They argue that when Joshua went into the promised land, when he took the children of Israel to Jerusalem and it was the land of milk and honey and they did have rest from all their enemies round about like we just read, that at that point God had satisfied his promises to Israel. He did everything he said he was going to do to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so therefore, that's a done deal. And we, of course, argue no, because Israel rebelled, and Israel was taken out of their land. And these promises of God of restoration and settling them again in their own land and giving them peace again is the promise of ultimate rest. Let me show that to you in the New Testament uh, book of Hebrews. Find the book of Hebrews, which I point out every time we look at it, is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, because this idea of God giving them rest is brought up again. Chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, let us fear, lest while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. 
For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed do enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, now this is very interesting because now this is David writing in the Psalms talking about the fact that even though Israel had entered into the land, even though they were in Jerusalem, God was angry with them. And because he was angry with them, he swore that the very rest that he had given them, they weren't going to enter it. And so what happened? Did God change his mind? Did he say, here's my rest? No, no, psych, take it away. <laughs> or, or did he say, you're not going to enter my final complete rest yet? That it's still something I'm going to give Israel because I've promised it, but not yet. And so the writer of Hebrews brings that up and says that David had written about the fact, as I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, again, this is Moses, writing, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then again, there's the passage, they shall never enter my rest. So here's his conclusion. Verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, the rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, that's Israel in the Old Testament, they failed to enter because of their disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, he said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, okay, that's what we're talking about. Now the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament comments on what we just read out of the book of Joshua. And said, had Joshua given them that final rest, David wouldn't be mentioning that there's another rest coming. And so he's just basing his argument off the text of Scripture. He's read what Scripture says, and he's followed the logic of it. And he said the children of Israel entered Jerusalem, and they had their rest. And they had rest roundabout from their enemies under Joshua, but then they rebelled. And then they were driven out of their land. And in the midst of their rebellion and their following foreign gods that David did write today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken about another day after that. So David mentions it again. So then he says, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did his. So that's his commentary theologically to say God rested from his works. God did his works for six days and he rested on the seventh. And then he promised the children of Israel there was going to be a permanent rest, a type of sabbatical rest, an ultimate rest. And then because of their rebellion, they didn't enter it. But David still promised them a day of rest. Now, we who are in Christ, we trust in Christ that he did all the work that was necessary for our salvation. Therefore, we rest in him so that there is still a Sabbath rest for us. But does that mean there's no rest for the children of Israel? There's still a rest promised through all the prophets to the nation of Israel back in their land, freedom from all their enemies, blessings from God that flow out to all the nations. That has yet to happen. Still has to. Go back to Micah. I said all of that just because I wanted to say Micah in verse 10 says almost sarcastically, arise and go. You're in your land. You're in the place of rest. You're in the land flowing with milk and honey, the place that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you're going to go into the Assyrian captivity. And so now arise and go. And that's why he said, for this is no place of rest. Because he saw that even though rest was so important to them, rest was part of the promise. 
If you stay here in Jerusalem, there's going to be no rest. So go into the Assyrian captivity. You got all that? There was a big theological comment on the word rest. Because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction, because of that, arise and go, for this is no place of rest. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, well, then he would be a spokesman to this people. In other words, he's just saying, if a guy comes and tells you it's all good, it's all peace, if he came and told you it's wine and liquor, it's heyday, eat, drink, be merry, don't worry, well, then you'd make him a spokesman of the nation. You'd raise up Joel Osteen. Did I say that out loud? You'd, you'd raise up people who are telling you lies, and you won't listen to me. And I'm telling you the truth. This is all going to happen very quickly now. God is going to take you out of your land, and this is not a place where you're going to have any rest. I will surely, look at verse 12, in the midst of all this bad news, in the midst of all this news of Israel being taken out of the land, suddenly there's a promise of restoration. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. You know, what does that mean? The name Jacob, Jacob is the guy who had his name changed to Israel. He's the progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's no way to make Jacob exclusive to Judah. There's no way to say he's only talking to the southern tribe here. He says, I'm going to gather you Jacob, which means I'm going to gather all 12 tribes again in order to gather Jacob. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, language that Paul picks up in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I won't go through it again tonight, but he picks up that remnant language to say that God has not abandoned the people who he foreknew because look at me, I'm an Israelite and God has done this for me. So there's this remnant concept that is proof of God's faithfulness to the children of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture, and they will be noisy with men. There's going to be so many men, so many people, that the promises that he made to Abraham, go out and see if you can count the stars or count the grains of sand on the sea. That's how great your posterity is going to be. Here, Micah saying the same thing. There's going to be so many people, it's going to be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. A shepherd would, in order to move his sheep along, his whole herd, would have to break up the stony ground. He'd have to break up the, the vines or the, if there was any kind of thorns or anything like that. He had to go ahead of them and break it up. So that's what he's talking about. God is going to be the breaker for these people. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, they pass through the gate, and they go by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. Now, there's no way to make that the church. There's simply no way to say that's satisfied in the fact that the church exists. But here we are again, another promise from yet another prophet that even though God has said this is not a place of rest, you're going to go out of Jerusalem just like you're... The children in the north went out into the Assyrian captivity and have yet to return from it. The southern kingdom is going to go into the Babylonian captivity. And, and ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy Jerusalem and he's going to knock down their temple. And so even their worship, all of this is going to happen to them. All the indications that God is completely against these people. And yet every single prophet says, but don't worry, the day is coming when God will restore you. And that hasn't happened yet. The 10 northern tribes haven't been gathered yet. The southern tribes scattered all over the world. And there certainly is no rest in Jerusalem <laughs> right now. But there will be, unless Micah's line, which is why last week I began with, how did Micah know that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. And how did Micah know that the one that was going to be born ever lived from the 
beginning, from the foundation of the world into eternity past. How did he know these things? And more importantly, how did he know in advance, some 20 years, some 120 and 140 years, how did he know that these kingdoms were going to go into captivity when every other prophet was saying, no, you won't? He was right. He was right, he was right, he was right. He has this batting average going where he's just right, therefore, I also agree with him when he says that God's going to reassemble all the 12 tribes of Israel. Because he's been right about everything else. How are you going to say he didn't get that one right? Chapter 3. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? So he's saying to the leaders, to the high and mighty in Jerusalem, you were supposed to be doling out justice. Instead, you've doled out injustice and robbery and in fact he's going to now compare it to cannibalism he's going to say that you you devoured these people here's his description of it you who hate good and love evil who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones and who eat the flesh of my people Strip off their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up for the pot as meat in a kettle. You're making stew out of the bones of my people. You're eating their flesh. You're devouring my people. Now, one of the things that they agreed to, we didn't get to it. I was going to look at it in Joshua, and I was so into my own rhythm, I just kept going to make the point about rest. But... One of the things that Joshua did was that he, he reconfirmed the covenant with the children of Israel and he, he went through the law with them again and said, do you promise to do things God's way? And they all, as a group, said, we will. Absolutely. And, and those rules include things like, don't covet. If it doesn't belong to you, it's not yours. Don't covet and don't kill. And even rules like love your neighbor, take care of your brother, take care of your fellow Israelite. He's also beloved by God. Don't even lend to other people. And if you do, then in the year of Jubilee, everything is going to go back to where it was. This was God wanting these people to all be protected so that no one fell through the cracks and the high and mighty and the politically connected so abused the people who had no power that God compared it to eating them alive. You're chewing up my people. Verse 4, then they will cry out to the Lord. This is the, the high and mighty. When they're moved, when they're in the Assyrian captivity, when they're being conquered, then they will cry out to the Lord. Look at the next line. But he will not answer them. He will not answer them. Is God under any compunction to answer absolutely everybody who mentions his name? Just because people pray to him, is he necessarily going to respond to them? No, it says right here that God has the right, by his own decision, he has the right to just take his people, put them into a captivity, put them into hardship, put them into pain, and then say, I won't answer you. That's part of the punishment. I've said many, many times that when God punishes a nation, when God wants to really show a nation his discipline and his consternation against them, one of the ways that he will judge a nation is that he will remove himself. He'll just take himself out of the equation. I'm just not with you anymore. So when I see um, Congress having a big prayer on the Capitol steps, I think of this first. I think, is God listening? Because you get done making all these laws that are so against the law of God, and then you walk outside and sing God Bless America, as if he's going to go, oh, well, since you've all said a, a little prayer, a little formula to me, I am completely on your side, even as you reject all my rules and laws. But God doesn't have to answer. So he says, 
to the leaders of the children of Israel. They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time. When they cry out to him, he'll hide his face. You know, at the end of the Old Testament, we get the impression that after the book of Malachi, that it's just a short hop, skip, and a jump to Matthew. But the truth is, there's 400 years there where God was silent. There were books written. They're called the intertestamental books, but there were no prophets. And those books aren't included in so many Bibles because they're history books, but they're not inspired books. It's not God speaking to the people anymore. In fact, during that time, you can read the accounts of the people in the temple saying, we don't know what to do. We, we don't know where to put the furniture. We don't know how to act until God tells us, and he hasn't told us. Actually, during that time, during that 400 years of, of God being silent, sex grew up within the Jewish religion, such as the Sadducees and their political connections or the Pharisees and their legal connections. But those people grew up during that period, during the time of Alexander the Great and the Greeks and... Uh, the time of Maccabees, Judas Maccabee and all that. 400 years, God is silent. Let's see, what are we in now? 2016. So if we go backwards from there, what, that, what would that be? Like 1616? So 1616, before we were even a nation. What if from 1616 till now, nobody ever heard from God? Nothing. Silent. That's a long time. And so from the end of the Old Testament until Jesus walks on the stage of history, there's silence there. So God is under no compunction. This is all I'm saying. God is under no compunction to always answer. And God will even be quiet and hide his face from his people, according to this, from Israel, from the people he chose, from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the false prophets during that time are going to have a heyday. They're going to run out and say any number of things because God isn't talking. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. So because they were evil, because they had agreed, because at Mount Sinai they had said to Moses, all that the Lord says we're going to do because in the time of Joshua, when they went into the promised land, they said, yes, absolutely. We're going to do all of it. Great. Keep the covenant. You betcha. And then, just like we see all the way through the book of Judges, and like we've seen all the way through the book of First Kings, that Israel continues to chase their foreign gods, and they're at their very worst when they're comfortable. When their prophets are saying, it's all liquor and wine. Just drink up. Don't worry. It's all good. It's all peace. It's all good. And that's when people get stupid and rebel against God. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. Okay, now he's talking about the false prophets, the ones I was just referring to. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace, right, when they're fat and happy, when there's something in their mouth, when they've got plenty to eat, when they've got plenty to drink, when the wine's flowing, when everything's good, they say to my people, peace, it's all good. It's all good. God loves you. Don't worry about it. God loves everybody. It's all good. Jesus wants you to have a bigger car and a bigger house and never get sick, no hardships. It's all good. Why? Because they're fat and happy. They will lead my people astray when they have something to bite with their teeth. They cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouth, they declare holy war. Do you hear that? Give me plenty and then I'll declare peace. Don't do things my way. Don't give me any gifts. Don't put something in my mouth and then I will declare war against you. They don't have the right to declare war, and they don't have the right to declare peace. But it's all based not in the word of God, but on their own fat and happy well-being. 
Does any of this sound familiar? There are people who will tell you happy-go-lucky things about God if you make them rich. If you just keep sending them money, get them a new mansion and a jet and a satellite dish. And get them all the They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And then if you oppose them, they'll say, I'm at war with you. But that's false prophets. The Bible says it's false prophets. They cry peace to anyone who gives them something to bite with their teeth, but against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you. In fact, there's going to be no vision. I'm not going to send the prophets any vision. These prophets are going to be false prophets. It's going to be darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. So why would you listen to them? And yet people will flock to them because they'll tell the people it's good. It's all good. Don't worry, God's for you. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. God is so against us. God is pouring out such a retribution against us that he has removed himself from us, and now we recognize that we need his leadership. We need his guidance. We need his rules, and he has given up in talking to us. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, now Mike is going to talk about himself. Okay, for the false prophets, it's all darkness, it's all bad, they're saying the wrong thing. But on the other hand, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious acts, even Israel their sin. So in other words, he's saying, I, by the very power of God, am counteracting what these false prophets have said. I'm telling you on God's own authority that he is against you and that you have sinned against him. And believe me, it takes a lot of courage to say those kind of things. It takes a certain amount of boldness to say, this is about God. God's in charge. This is God's world. God created all this. In fact, if you're willing to go out and say things like that, people will call you unintellectual or stupid or uneducated, not, not knowing how to be uh, intellectually cynical like the rest of us. So it takes a certain amount of courage to go out and just say what God is saying. On the other hand, I am filled with power, says Micah, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and who build Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a tribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. That's what the false prophets do. They divine for money, they'll do it for profit, and they'll reassure people, Don't worry, God is in our midst. Don't worry, God is for us. Don't worry, I speak for the Lord. No calamity is going to come upon us. And yet Micah says, Oh, yes, it will. Calamities coming on Israel. And of course, as I keep saying, he's right. That's what happened historically. That's what happened. But the false prophets who had taken over Israel are just preaching good for them for money. Does that sound familiar? Some things never change. People will tell you whatever you want to hear if you give them enough money. Last verse. 
Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. This destruction happened in the late 500s when Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon finally conquered Jerusalem. So again, he's right. Chapter 4, the end of this section then is going to be, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. So again, he's going to turn it. Again, he's going to do what he does with every one of these warnings. Here's the warning. Here's what God's going to do. And oh yeah, God is going to reestablish Israel. So the pattern is consistent. When we get to chapter 4, at the beginning of next week, we're also going to have to look at Isaiah because Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah's, as I said last week. And at this point in the book of Micah, He's saying the same things that Isaiah said, almost verbatim. They're using the same language. One of them either copied the other because they liked what the other said so much, or it was the same Holy Spirit speaking through both of them, saying the exact same thing. So we'll get into that next week. Got it? Got it, sir. Good. Questions? It does preach itself, doesn't it? Because it's just that plain. And yet there are people who not only never read it, but don't believe it. And it says that God is sometimes quiet. God sometimes hides himself. God holds people in, in judgment. And, and God in his sovereignty can do whatever he feels is right to his own people. Because they are going to either do things his way or he's going to correct them. And that's just the way it's going to work. So you might as well get on the right side of that equation now. Because one way or the other, if you belong to him, he's going to correct you. And isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews says? That whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son that he accepts, every son that he receives. Because that's the way God works. God corrects people. God brings people back in line. And if you belong to him, he's not going to lose you. But he will correct you. And that's thematic throughout the Bible. And I think anybody who's lived for any amount of time has to end up saying, yeah, that's the way God works. I know it from my own life. That's the way God works. All right. Let's call it a night and go home. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.